ACASTCAST. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So what do leadership, the United States Air Force, riding well, and leprechaun costumes have in common? The answer is Colonel Carla D. Bass, today's guest on the Burden of Command podcast. Now, before we get into the show, I just want to take a second to, uh, to ask you all to please be sure that you are uh, sharing, rating, reviewing, and subscribing to the show. It helps us grow, helps our guests get exposure for their books and projects that they're working on, and uh, keeps getting the, the messages out here that we're trying to get. So hopefully you're enjoying the show. Be sure that uh, if you have any suggestions, you're getting back to me at burden.command at gmail.com. With that, let's go ahead and dive right into this week's episode. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Burden of Command podcast. Today, I've got a special guest Colonel Carla D. Bass, United States Air Force, retired. Uh, Carla, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for the opportunity. I, I really appreciate it. And uh, uh, just to let the listeners know, Carla served 30 years in the United States Air Force, where she retired as a colonel. She was one of the few women of her generation to do so. She is now completing her 12th year with the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. The ability to write powerfully has been central to her professional success. Throughout her career, Carla composed products for Congress, the White House, general officers, and ambassadors. She wrote hundreds of performance reviews, nominations for awards, and other competitive packages. As a squadron commander, Carla once transformed her 480-person unit from the most losing in statewide professional competitions into the one to beat. She developed her writing methodology, composed a handbook, and taught them how to write. So successful was her program, she taught thousands of people over the next 15 years. Her battle cries she developed from this experience are twofold. Powerful writing changes lives, and powerful writing is the lifeblood of effective organizations. In 2017, she authored the multiple award-winning book, Write to Influence and in June 2019, published a second edition. Carla brings her expertise in a variety of highly acclaimed workshops to government agencies, corporations, private businesses, NGOs, and academia. She is also an adjunct instructor at Defense Intelligence Agency's National Intelligence University. From powerful writing to banish bureaucratic blather for the workforce to resumes, input for performance reviews, grant submissions, and crafting essays for college applications, she covers it all to rave reviews. Carla's assignments include Hawaii, Washington, D.C., Germany, Korea, Turkey, and Bulgaria, where she served as the Air and Defense Attaché. Carla, again, thank you for being with us. Uh, Sounds like you've had kind of a busy uh, life and career there. It, it's been an amazing adventure, and and it continues. Every every day is every day is a trip. 
<laughs> well, wouldn't have it any other way, right? So, uh, well, before we uh, do a deep dive into into all of that and why writing is so powerful, let me start you off where I start all of my guests. What does the phrase burden of command mean to you? I, I consider burden of command more as an honor. It, it's not a burden, it's an honor. And the reason I say that is there's generally... Uh, a very rigid selection process uh, where leadership is very keen to make sure that only those that are uh, best qualified are are given those select assignments. Um, so that's why I call it an honor. It's it's a difficult responsibility because the the commander, the, the somebody in a, in a leadership position, has to very carefully balance um, the needs of the mission against the needs of the people. You can't water one side of the plant without watering the other. Um, when I was a, uh, a second lieutenant, my father, who was also retired Air Force, he commissioned me and he gave me three pieces of advice, which, which dovetails with your question about burden of leadership. He said, first of all, keep your sense of humor. I modified that to say the more warped, the better. <laughs> he said, always stay focused on the mission with with blinders, don't get caught up in office politics or office soap operas. But the one that truly resounded, and, and I followed it from day one and even today, was take care of your people. So that's what a leader's mantra is, is to listen to and take care of the people. So you know, I was blessed twice, once as a squadron commander, once as a group commander, um, to have these types of leadership positions, and I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for them. And one other thought on this one, though, is you can be a supervisor of only one person or two people, and you're still in a leadership role. Or you can be an informal leader where people uh, informally respect you and listen to you. You don't even have to be a formal supervisor. So leadership is a, uh, a very... A valued gift that should be taken very responsibly. No, I I'll agree with that, and uh, I don't know what your experiences are, but uh, you know, in my experiences, not just in the Marine Corps, but uh, in the private sector, uh, more often than not, it seems like those informal leaders usually have just as much, if not in some instances, more power than the formal leaders and managers. Well, exactly. Um, so I, I'm always very careful to caveat it that we don't get stuck with this uh, administrative context that if you don't supervise somebody, therefore you can't be a leader because that's that's fallacious. Yeah, 100%. I mean, that was the one thing that they, uh, and that's why I like the advice you, you shared from, from your father. You know, in, in uh, the Marines, they, they drilled a lot of these, uh, we had what we called the 11 leadership principles and uh, you know, the one of them was uh, know your troops and look out for their welfare. So uh, when, when I saw the take care of your people, that, that really resonated with me. Um, now, through your career, how have you been able to put those uh, those three pieces of advice into play? Well, the... Uh... Well, let's see. The one one thought that was uh, resonating here was uh, throwing parties. So I went back again to my childhood. I I grew up in an Air Force family, so I watched it as the daughter of my parents. Always threw the 
wonderful parties, and they made a point which I which I emulated once I uh, you know uh, achieved adulthood of my own. But whenever they threw an office function at our home, they would invite up the chain of command. They would go about two levels above whatever dad was doing, you know, up his supervisory chain. But more importantly, they would invite two or three levels below that. So the, the senior airmen, the sergeants, the, the true worker bees, the engines that make the Air Force run, were invited to our parties also. And, and what's fascinating to watch uh, then and then with my own experiences is that the senior leaders that I would invite to our home thoroughly enjoyed spending time and mingling with the youngest, the, the younger generations. So that was one way that I applied that. Another was the, the uh, experience with the 324th Intelligence Squadron. This is where my personal journey began with this right to influence. I didn't realize until then the, uh, the true power that, uh, that the written word has on career progression. I mean, you know, you, you knew about it, but it wasn't until I saw super talented troops being passed over time and again not because they didn't deserve to win, but merely because their bosses, well-intentioned though they were, could not write winning packages. And, and that was almost Shakespearean tragedy because um, the, the young kids weren't getting promoted. They didn't get the pay raises. They couldn't save money. They couldn't put kids through college, ultimately, all because one level up couldn't write. And so that's where initiative, taking care of the people, uh, doing an inventory of, of what tools are in my own personal kit and how can I help them. That's where it all came to play. And so that, I say powerful writing changes lives. It, it does. And, and in that instance, it changed mine like uh, tremendously. A long answer to your short question. No, that's uh, that's a good answer. I mean, because I agree with you 100 percent. I've ran into that as well. Uh, you know, and as we've mentioned before, it's not just, uh, uh, you know, it's not just writing for the sake of writing. I mean, it's, it's performance reviews. It's, it's those appraisals you talk about. And, and it's, it's amazing how, uh, how somebody who is just a, a mediocre writer and somebody who is a superstar writer can say the same exact thing, just use a different skill set and get vastly different results. So why does the written word matter that much? Because with the written word, you're trying to convey a message to somebody that somebody is incredibly busy. So what you have to do is within the first, literally count the numbers of seconds, you have to be able to snag that audience's attention. I, I liken it to a boxer in a ring where you deliver a good solid right cross across the jawbone. You have to, you have to snag the reader's attention. Okay, I've got it. And then immediately a, a left cross, you know, a left cross to say, okay, I got your attention. Here's my point. Um, and, and words and how you structure your message and how you strategize it, the, those all have to come into play if you're going to be able to persuade or influence the reader to what your particular point of view is. You know, that, that applies um, as the subtitle of my book for everything, for 
uh, awards, nominations, contract bids, grant submissions, resumes, input to your own performance reviews. Uh, and we, we are all consumers ourselves. You know how a movie trailer, for example, it's either going to snag your attention or it's not. Um, that's, that's the approach. Uh, one of the philosophies I use to explain all this is that every single writer, regardless of what you're writing, regardless of the purpose, you're, con you're constrained by two things. You're constrained by time, which I just explained. Tick, tick, the reader is busy. The, the seconds are fleeting and so is the attention. And you're constrained by space. So whether it's the above the fold on a web page or whether it's a requirement, a, a demarcation on a government form or a, a space limitation, you've got 450 words, or convey the essence of your book in, in 25 spaces, you have to be able to leverage that time and space effectively, which means you can't have any wasted words, you can't have any huge uh, rambling preambles, you have to know exactly what to say with precision. And, and that tips the balance between success and failure very often. Well, yeah, and, and the one thing that I like that you, uh, you you make a very good distinction to is this has internal implications, as we're talking about here, with promotions and recognition and all that. But you kind of just hit on it there. It has external applications as well, because if you're an organization who's putting out bids or looking for grants, quite often that the verbiage used is really... Uh, the tipping point. Sure, the price plays in, but you convey a lot through the words you use and the way you write, correct? Oh, exactly. Um, marketing, you know, marketing products, trying to attract the uh, the consumer's attention. Um, uh, here's, another, here's another thought. This also stems back to the 324th. I had, happily, I'd already recognized that writing is actually a strategic tool. So when I when I took over the 324th, it was it was a unit that pretty much did not like itself. Um, as soon as I arrived, I gave the unit. Now this this harkens back to our earlier conversation about getting to know your people. I gave them what I call a plus three minus three survey. This is something that I had experienced, so I don't claim any credit for uh, creating this thing. I, but I was on the receiving end once, and it was brilliant. And what you do is as soon as you take over a new organization, you ask everybody top to bottom to give, tell you um, in any form they want to. I said, write it on a paper towel. I don't care. But tell me from your perspective, the three strengths and three weaknesses of this organization, your perspective. Um, and what I what I received from the members of the 324th at that point in time, I could have read I needed asbestos gloves because the top three things they liked about the unit or again, we were in Hawaii. They liked the golf courses, the weather and the beaches. In other words, they didn't like anything about the unit. So what I what I did, I took all of the negatives I, I bean counted how many each one was mentioned, and then I turned that around and I sent it back out to the unit. I said, this is what you told me. These are the 15 items in priority order of, of needing to be fixed, and this is how we're going to all uh, set about to fix them. And we did. Um, so where I'm going with that is we turned the unit's morale around tremendously. The problem was there had been 
only water that had been uh, um, sprinkled on the mission plant. There'd been very little attention paid to the people and the families, so we fixed that. Here's the strategic communication part. Air Intelligence Agency in those days had, it was a, a global organization. They had a, a monthly, it's not a newsletter, it's a, a, a very professional magazine that the units could, contrib could contribute to. So I, I, with my public affairs senior airman, we started a strategic communications campaign. And for every one of these brand new programs that we implemented, we did a, a feature article and submitted it to the magazine called The Spokesman. And pretty soon, everybody was in, in AIA was looking at the 324th and they began emulating the programs that we actually created. And it was beautiful. To watch that unit blossom, they they took pride in themselves, and and pretty soon people were saying, "Ah, you're from the 324th," and it was it was just amazing. So that was a combination of taking care of your people, the power of words, um, uh, and and watering well watering the people side of the plant. But strategic communications had a huge uh, play in that success story. Well, you know, and there's there's two things there that I I really I really like. One, uh, you know, you asked for the 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 three negatives, if you will, and that's that's kind of a hard thing to get leaders, especially new leaders to an organization, uh, to to wrap their head around is that there's there's a lot of value in knowing the things that aren't working well and focusing on fixing those now. And as you pointed out, you looked for the things that were legitimate, and I'm using air quotes there, but legitimate complaints, not just somebody having a bad day venting. If, if you saw a, uh, it sounds to me like if I heard you right, mm -hmm. you looked for the themes, not just the, the singularities, right? Oh, exactly. So I, I, I came up with a list of, I don't remember, it's been a while now, but 15 or 20 items. Uh, and then I would put hash marks by the frequency with which, with which each one of those items uh, was, was noted in these plus three minus threes. And I tell you, the, and the other thing that, I, was do, that I, I did during that first year is I spent time on the mid shifts. Oh, my God, I loved that. So I'd put in the regular duty day, come home, I had a nanny, take care of my two youngsters, I mean, young children. And then I would, I would go spend hours sitting on the racks with the, uh, with the enlisted kids working the mid-shifts. I'd just pull up a chair, sit down, and we'd start talking. I would take notes. And so it meant so much to them to have, and this sounds like I'm patting myself on the back. I really don't mean to do that. It's just, it's just a true story. But if you sit down with the, with the troops, whether they're civilian or anyone, um, but listen to them and not just listen to them, but take action on what they say, because that, too, uh, constituted the glue that helped build this unit back into a good, cohesive um, whole. I, I cherish those uh, those midnight shifts. Oh, well, and don't <laughs> don't be afraid to pat yourself on the back at all, because that is. That is outstanding. I mean, that's, uh, you know, everybody kind of wonders that everybody who hasn't either met the man or uh, hasn't been in the Marine Corps wonders why we love General Mattis so much. But it was exactly for things like that. There's the there's the infamous uh, story of him pulling Christmas duty as a general. Uh, so one of his Marines who had family could spend Christmas with his 
family and kids. And, you know, again, that that's the thing. Yep. And I wish more leaders uh, would understand that is, is I, and, and Simon Sinek, I think he put it best. So I'll just kind of paraphrase him. He's like, uh, we don't dislike leaders uh, who take the benefits of their position. We dislike leaders who take the benefits of their position uh, at uh, at the peril of us. And what he was saying was, you know, if you're if if you're at that position, there are certain privileges that come with it, but you also have to look back and take care of your people. And and what I loved about hearing that and, and mm-hmm. the second piece of, of your previous there is you mentioned the word families. That's also where a lot of leaders, in my experiences working with leaders, uh, stop is at those four walls. They don't look at the impact of taking care of the people's, uh, their, their people's families as well. So, uh, yeah, pat yourself on the back because that is a, that is a mm-hmm. I would call that a pro-level move because I guarantee you, those people that you spent that time with on those midnight shifts as they work through their career, they look back on that exchange with their leadership as some of the best times in their career because you took the time, you made them feel valued, and they were able to contribute to making making the mission stronger. Yep. Now here, here's one more vignette from that same period, uh, and this this blends the theme of you have to be able to to laugh at yourself, uh, um, the sense of humor, and taking care of the people. So at that point, I I threw a St. Patrick's Day party. Everyone had to bring a limerick. They had to rehearse. I mean, present the limerick, perform it, and it was in costume. So when and I invited up the chain and down the chain, I had I had so many wonderful senior airmen um, to that party. When the party broke, remembering remembering I've got the uh, the shift work still in my leprechaun attire, which was Kelly green and gold lame and my gold top hat. I took a bunch of the uh, the food, the corned beef, cabbage, and and whatever we had into into Kenya, into the workstation, past the army guards. And I tell you, the, <laughs> those poor folks didn't quite know what to do with this lieutenant colonel who came in at about midnight dressed as a leprechaun and carting all sorts of corned beef. But you just, you have to do stuff like that. It makes for great stories. And it it surely brightened the, uh, the, the folks' evening. They're the ones that were pulling the mid-shift. But the people, the families, you know, this goes back to well, the the audience, whenever you're writing something or communicating something, the, the cardinal rule is know your audience. What's the audience's concern? What do they need from you and so forth? We all know that. But when you go back to uh, to the people, it the, the everybody, uh, you're concerned about your family. So it's not just you and your job and input for your appraisal and, and so forth. You drop a pebble, pebble in the pond and and the ripples emanate. So you have to look at what's their concern, what's driving them. And obviously, it's the family. So when you take care of the the immediate family of the 324th members, that by definition has to extend to their families as well. And that way you get the, the whole, the cohesive whole. Yeah, well, and exactly. And, and you know, in in this time and age, we use the words work-life balance a lot more. Well, I, I, to me, I don't think there's any way better to bring work-life balance into balance than to recognize uh, the family. 
You know, I mean, I, I ask people to think about it is, you know, when, and I'll use you as an example since we're talking, you know, you just got, as the, the spouse of an employee, you know, you just got a birthday card uh, for you uh, from your spouse's boss, and now your spouse is being asked to, uh, you know, hey, we need you for a little bit of overtime. You know, now you've built some of that, uh, uh, I'll use corporate speak here a little bit, that relationship capital, and they're much more likely to be okay with that than if you're the type of boss that the spouse comes home and just complains about because they don't care about the people and they just want me to do this. And they're just, you know, they're slave drivers at work. If you care about your people and the people that matter to your people, you're going to get a lot more buy-in and a lot more, uh, uh, a lot more oomph out of the time at work, right? Oh, ex exactly. Exactly. The, uh, that makes the, the family, the spouse, feel part of the husband's um, or the, the, the employed um, individual. It, it, yes, it brings that, that external circle a little bit closer. So it, it builds rapport. I always, and I would always um, thank the individual who's working late. I would ask them to convey my thanks to their spouse for for their patience and, and perseverance and, and letting me keep them late because that, by definition, removed them from, from the family. So now let me ask you this question, uh, you know, because uh, we, we talked about, you know, the the kind of the the momentous occasion of, of becoming a colonel uh, uh, at the time period where, where you were active. Uh, but when other, when your peers started seeing you implement some of these leadership strategies, uh, did, did, and, and I'll uh, assume that they were predominantly male, did they adopt them immediately or did they just kind of dismiss as, oh, there's a touchy female leader doing these things? Uh, that's a hard question. I'm going to say there had to have been some perspective of, of touchy touchy feely female thing but but I never I never thought of it that way uh, for my entire career I always considered myself um, an Air Force whether it was captain major lieutenant colonel who happened to be a woman I was never the woman who happened to be the Air Force officer so I always I always came at it from a professional perspective but then the other thing is I have never been conventional in anything. So I don't know of any of my, my then colleagues, my peers, who would have thrown themselves in a leprechaun uniform or outfit and, and gone and sat a midshift. But, you know, I didn't care. I just did a lot of what came naturally. Um, yeah, I was, I was always in sync with my troops. They, they knew what to expect. Um, and, and what to expect was not conventional. And, and that kind of that kind of opened up all sorts of new avenues for possibilities for me and for the units too. Well, and I think that's a valuable lesson in and of itself right there is just to be uh, authentically your style of leadership. I, I can't tell you how many leaders I've, I've chatted with that have just about every John C. Maxwell book ever written, and he's written a lot of really great books but they try to do exactly what John Z. Maxwell has written in his book. And it's just, it's not their style. And, and your followers can tell when you're not authentically leading your way, right? Oh, yeah. 
You know, I've I've practiced for a very, very long time the philosophy of life's too short to be shy or bashful. So I'm I'm neither of those. Um, there's another philosophy that I it was bred into me uh, from my mom, bless her soul. She she would wag her finger at me as a youngster all the way up, and she there's no such word as can't. She would say no such word as can't. And and I inculcated that, and and uh, and that has paid dividends too. So here's here's another little vignette where, a no such word as can't came into play. Two, work a miracle. Three, you can't do it without writing. Four, take care of your people. Here's the story: when I was the group commander up at National Security Agency, I had just arrived. Um, it was the summertime and the plans for the Air Force birthday ball in September were already set. There was nothing I could do to change that. Out of out of 2,800 people assigned to my group, I think we had 140, 140 show up for the birthday ball. It was awful. So as soon as that gavel went down, I, my I, everyone who was there, I said, next year, this is going to be a sold out function and we're going to have a waiting list um, of attendees. So what I needed to do was get a bell ringer guest speaker. So I decided as a little Air Force group captain, I was going to invite the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to be our guest speaker. Before I launched on that august and one, some would say, nonsensical mission, I got the permission of, uh, of then Lieutenant General Hayden, Michael Hayden, who was the director of National Security Agency. He knew me. He said, Carla, go for it. So this is where the power of writing comes in. In one letter, in a one-page, three-paragraph letter, I explained to General Shelton, the, the chairman then, that the Air Force identity of my, my unit was, uh, it, it was diluted because when you go into NSA, you identify with NSA and, and the Esprit de Corps was really suffering. I said, sir, I need a bell ringer. I need you to please come be the guest speaker at our event. Um, it was worded a lot more eloquently than that. Then I took, I rolled that little piece of paper. I, I, encompassed it in camouflage netting and my second grade daughter had a, a, a little four inch American flag that she stuck on a stick from the backyard. I crammed that into this rolled camouflaged invitation that was delivered to General Shelton and you know what? He came. So we had 600 people. It was maximum attendance, 600 people and we had a waiting list and to do something unconventional, I had balsam airplanes at each one of the 600 desks or seats, uh, dining places. We had uh, styrofoam So throughout the whole evening, we were singing songs. Airplanes were flying. Missiles were flying. It was a hellaciously fabulous event. But that wouldn't have happened if, if, you, if, you, believe, if, you, if you didn't believe that miracles are possible. And you had to be able to tell that compelling story. Otherwise, that, that request would have been dead on arrival. All sorts of good war stories here. Oh, yeah. Well, no, and I love it because it, it bugs me to no ends how many people uh, self-eliminate just because of that word uh, can't and its, its partner won't. Uh, you know, working with people... Getting ready for for jobs, like I, I remember, I had a uh, 
Uh, I had a lady I was working with, and a job came open that she she really wanted. And we were talking, and I asked her, it's like, well, you know, how is your submission coming along, uh, your application? Oh, I haven't even started. We're just like two or three days out. And I'm like, why? This is your dream job. Well, I'm not going to get picked. And I, I was like, well, you're definitely not going to pick if you uh, get picked if you don't apply. What's the worst that could happen? Well, I don't meet this and I don't meet that. I'm like, can you do the job? Well, yeah, I can do the job. Then apply. Just don't self-eliminate. She ended up getting the job, and she's been there now for, I think, close to close to 10 years now, and she's loving it. Well, well they do. We, we get one shot at this life, unless you believe in reincarnation. And, and if there is such a thing, I'm coming back as a, a Navy SEAL or a Delta troop. I, I decided that years and years ago. But you get one shot at life. And so and it's, so please, to your audience, no such word as can't. If there's something you want to do, get the heck out there and go get it. Um, you know, another bit of philosophy was I don't I don't follow my dream. I pursue them with a passion. Follow a dream is too passive. Get out there and snag it. Mm. Um, another another thought that I wanted to uh, to mention in, in case I run out of time is the importance. This is going back to recognizing the talent of your people. Is is delegate authority and empower subordinates to help accomplish what you want to do. So uh, uh, throughout throughout the last, I would say, 15 years of my career, um, I developed a lot of professional development programs for the senior airmen, for the junior officers. But I would always turn to, for the senior airmen, for example, I turned to the senior enlisted troops because they they were the ones that were technically responsible for grooming the younger enlisted troops. So I said, okay, I want a three-day professional development course, which did not exist then for senior airmen. This is what I wanted to cover, A, B, C, D, E. And then I went hands off. I said, over to you. You all have all the expertise. You know what I want. Let's Let's work together, but you take the stick on this thing. So that delegating to them, entrusting to them to bring the ball across the goal did wonders for the morale of the senior NCOs. It gave them additional credibility from the perspective of the senior airmen. And then once we once we developed the program, they ran it for me. So there's a whole lot that can be gained by recognizing the talent and empowering it. Uh, yeah. No, I... Uh... I agree 100% there, uh, you know, and, and that's another one of those, it's another one of those skills that I find it hard uh, to, to, to get leaders to do. And, and I love what you did because it's, it's exactly what I tell folks is define success and then get out of the way. Mm-hmm. And is that program still running to this day? Oh, Yeah. Uh, that was another one of the, uh, the, it was the senior airman program. Um, several of the other units then emulated it. The Air Force subsequently formally developed a, a program, I believe, for senior airmen. Um, so we were, we were just way ahead of the, of the bow wave there. I did something similar um, up at NSA. A lot of the civilian employers, or supervisors, sorry, the civilian supervisors were 
unfamiliar with uh, with what it took to responsibly um, manage military people. They, they weren't familiar with uh, professional military education and other requisites that were fundamental to getting promoted. So I, I developed a, uh, I forget, it was a one-day or two-day, but it was, it was a course to help educate the civilian supervisors of what it took or what the requirements were. How do you, um, how do you supervise and take care of your Air Force troops? Because there's no school for, there wasn't then, for civilian supervisors to go to, to understand that you know, they didn't want to hurt their Air Force members. So someone had to teach them. Um, so yeah, I, I did a lot of that. It was just empathy. You put yourself in somebody else's position and then look at an issue backwards. And, uh, and you can get a lot of uh, clear insight on on what the course of action needs to be. Well, that that is, I love the way you put that. That is a hundred percent. So again, just kind of uh, summarizing here for for the listeners because we've kind of talked about them throughout here. Uh, your your four life lessons: powerful writing changes lives. It opens doors to opportunity. Powerful writing tips the balance between success and failure. Powerful writing is the lifeblood of effective organizations, and powerful writing is a fundamental leadership skill. And, and I think you've done a really good job of, of talking about uh, how and or why those are all true, uh, but how do people become better writers? Okay, and I really don't mean to be... Well, I'll just spit it out. Learn how to write to influence. So when when I retired, um, yeah, I was at a crossroads. This 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 ability, this God given ability. Uh, you know, I, I stink at math, but I can write, uh, and I have I have been able to change people's lives. I have taught others for fifteen years. I taught this in the Air Force. So how can you learn to write by the book? Uh, bring me out for a workshop. Um, the the books at, pub, at a lot of public libraries, but everything that I do, everything that I learned, the writing methodology, it's all in the book, and it's not a boring book. I talk about Rumpelstiltskin, about Goldilocks, about Mary Poppins. So so throughout this book is is my dad's sense of humor. Uh, I I speak I speak in the book like a Dutch uncle. Uh, the word sculpting. Let me give a, a quick a quick vignette there. When I saw how bad the 324th, how badly the 324th was doing, I took three days vacation. I hid myself. I sequestered in a beach cabin, and I analyzed my writing. Out of those three days came what I call the 10 word sculpting tools. Um, and what that means is after you've got a draft, uh, you you go through and sentence by sentence you you chisel out like sculpting you chisel out the useless words the redundancy the words at hog space I've broken it out into to ten ten different things you look for and what happens is you take your five page draft once you're done chiseling it out you get rid of all the excess fluff you've got three pages of hard hitting text and if you applied the word strategy the 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 strategies and right to influence you've hit it with the proper amount of detail you got the main message up front you got the ancillary information at the bottom uh, you've got the call to action so how can they learn how to write powerfully is 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 get the book or take the take the bring me out for a workshop but 
I wanted to make sure that if I got hit by a truck, that that I left the knowledge behind. And so it's out there. The, it's it's won four awards. Um, I gave so many different workshops after the first edition came out. That's what prompted the second edition that has 70 more pages and many new chapters uh, because the hunger, the hunger was so acute. Um, so that's, that's how you learn how to write powerfully is you practice, learn what the tools are and practice. And, and, and I love that because, and the reason I wanted to ask that question is because I'm, I'm, uh, I'm afraid uh, because I've seen it happen before that, that when we talk about writing better and, 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 and all that, that, uh, you know, people are going to run and grab their thesaurus and start trying to throw in all of these uh, $10 words when a nickel word will do. And, you know, that's, that's not writing better. That's oftentimes writing oh, it, more confusingly. Yeah. It, yeah. It's actually more than that. So, so I explain all this. My approach is an inverted triangle the, at the top of that inverted triangle, the, the large flat part, that's where you actually have to strategize the message. So that's where these elements come into play. Know the audience. What do they want? Frame your message. Develop the outline. You, you, have, to, you have to start molding the clay at strategizing. And there's a bunch of strategy points. There's not enough time to, to go through that here. And then when you get down to the 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 tippy point of the inverted triangle, that's where you break out the word sculpting tools. But it has to be a twofold approach because you can have a wonderfully strategized message, but if the sentences are so filled with bureaucratic blather, nobody's going to read it. Conversely, you could have 30 beautifully honed sentences, not a wasted word anywhere, but if there's no strategy to your message, you've lost the audience also. So this is the right-left punch again. You got to strategize the the story, and then you hone it to that fine edge, and that's how you write to, to influence. No, I I like it. I like it. And uh, you know, again, uh, you know, uh, Carl is being humble here, but that's the point of this is is I want to really uh, I want to really promote what she's doing and and her book, and I I do highly recommend uh, picking up a copy. I've I have a uh, a copy that I actually checked out of my local library. Uh, I ha I'll admit I haven't read through it verbatim, uh, but I have you know skimmed through it. And I do want to sit down and and uh, and flip through it because actually uh, I like it because it, it's it's almost like a good reference book to just have on your desk for for a writing exercise. Uh, so you know, definitely pick up a copy of of Right to Influence and uh, you know go through. Uh, Carla's tips and 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 definitely uh, I like that sculpting because when I was reading that uh, it reminded me of of one of my favorite and kind of underrated Sean Connery movies uh, Finding Forrester uh, I don't know if you've ever seen that movie or not I have yeah so it's it's when when they're in his apartment and and he's trying to help the kid become a writer and and he's like just right. And like the kid's like, well, what do I write about? He's like, just right. And then he finally starts, uh, they're the banging away on the keys. Like, yes, yes. Bang those keys. <laughs> you know, it's like, I like that approach. <laughs> Get it all out there and then whittle it down. Um, cause you know, I think that's where uh, a lot yeah, of, I, I would, I would, I would not go ahead. Yep. And you're right. I would modify that with, with one thing though, is you have to start with an outline. 
because you know the story you want to tell, you know the beginning, you know the conclusion, so you are a tour guide. And you have to you start with an outline so that you can make sure you hit all those key steps. You take the reader by the hand and point by point by point, you make your case left, right, left, right. Ah, I got it. If you don't do that, one, you're likely to be rambling all over the place. Two, remembering that time and space, the outline lets you leverage that time and space. So you have to actually... Figure out in your head before you start down and banging it out, you have to bang it out based on an outline. That is so important. Right. No, 100%. 100%. Well, Carla, we're uh, approaching uh, about 45 so minutes if or you're, so here. Oh, go ahead. Yep. Yeah, if I could ask, um, for those who do go out and get the book, if you could do me a tremendous favor, just a sentence or two posting on Amazon unless you walk in an author's shoes, you have no idea how helpful that is. So, and just a sentence or two, um, but that, that helps the statistics. It helps the visibility. It enables me to help other people too. So if I could put that, that plea in, I'd appreciate it. No, outstanding. Yeah. Um, and, and that is a good, uh, that is a good note. That's one of the things, I mean, cause it works the same way in podcasting. The more, uh, reviews you get, the more visibility your your show gets, and uh, you know I always ask for that at the end, and and, and I would agree. Uh, you know I have a few friends who've written books that are on Amazon, and and those reviews they they help immensely. So uh, I'll have a link uh, to the book on Amazon in the show notes, and so uh, you know like, like Carla asked, just go in there and, and just drop a few just a few lines. Uh, what did you get out of it? How would you rate it? Would you recommend it for others? Those are also big big deals to throw in there. So uh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, but that actually ties in uh, really nice with where I was going. Uh, you know, we're sitting around 45 minutes or, or so here, give or take, once editing's done. Um, is there anything that we haven't had a chance to touch on that you would like to? Oh, man, we've pretty much covered the waterfront. Um, all of the, all of the people issues, uh, leadership. I have really enjoyed this. Uh, no, just the the website, www.righttoinfluence.net, N-E-T. Um, no, I, I wish I wish all of your, your listeners tremendous success. I think, I think they recognize now through my, my little stories how powerful writing is a leadership school, uh, skill. It does change lives. It does open doors, and it does tip the balance between success and failure. So... I appreciate beyond and ineffable is one of my new favorite words. It's it's indescribable, ineffable. Uh, my degree of appreciation at this opportunity to speak with you and your audience. Oh no, and I I really appreciate you taking the time. And uh, you know, I'm sure uh, listeners probably heard a couple of dropouts here and there. We've been battling some some tech issues as the gremlins like to pop up. But uh, you know the. Uh, you know, this was great. I'm glad we uh, uh, we we persevered through it and we got this uh, recorded because it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Uh, I'm glad you put your uh, website out. I will definitely have that in show notes as well. Uh, if the listeners want to reach out to you directly, is there a good way for them to be able to do that, or is it just through the site? No, no, it, it's Carla C A R L A at right to influence dot net, and I'll have that in. Uh, 
in the show notes as well, so people can just be able to click on that and, and uh, hopefully send you an email. Um, well, Carla, again, thank you very much for uh, for spending the last uh, you know last close to an hour uh, with me and, and my audience. I really appreciate it, and uh, hopefully we can uh, sell a few more books and, and get some more visibility on this because uh, you know, I think it is a very important topic, and it is very critical to leadership. I agree with you 100% on, on that lesson as well. So thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. You're so welcome. Have a good evening. All right. And listeners, thank you for spending this time with us as well. I uh, really appreciate you uh, uh, being a patron of the show. Uh, please make sure, as we already discussed, that you rate and review the show uh, so we get more visibility and, and get into more ears. Uh, if you have any comments or feedback for me, it's just burden.command at gmail.com. That's burden.command at gmail.com. I hope you've enjoyed this, uh, this episode, and I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an Electric Cast production. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, is that no, that's just my dad. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels again with a big hole. On this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric acid. Yeah.